0: Hello, humans. Welcome to the M Word podcast, brought to you by Martin over here and Matt over there. Matt on Zoom.
1: Yes, back that's because in we- the old uh, lockdown time.
0: Yeah, and we can't blame lockdown because reason we're doing it is Our guest, Robin, he's in Belfast. Obviously, mm-hmm. can't get to the island. Travels a-, a lot here, so thanks for joining us today, Robin. It's appreciated. It's pleasure. Perhaps to give our listeners uh, a little bit of uh, background to yourself, what you do day to day, and then, I suppose, rolling into your interaction with the Isle of Man, which is, I'll probably explain how we we came across each other.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm the professor of, professor of uh, clinical psychology, and I've uh, worked in mental health and addictions, really, in the National Health Service, both in Leeds and in Belfast, um, for more years than uh, <laughs> and I care to remember. Really, I uh, I have a, I've had a clinical post, clinical posts uh, o- over the years. I've also had managerial posts. I've run services, pretty large, large psychotherapy services uh, in in Leeds and in Leeds Belfast, and uh, also then part of my time has been in research, looking at at the. Uh, how psychological therapies actually work and for whom do they work. So I've done a bit of research in that area uh, and uh, done a lot of research in motivation and what motivates people to actually change, you know, change their behaviour. And then finally, uh, as a clinical component to the job, there's a research component, I've been very lucky to have a teaching component as well. So I'm able to teach about mental health and addictions. in, in London and in the Isle of Man indeed and in Belfast and and, and so on so uh, I've been very lucky uh, over the years but I was able to retire from the health service as such uh, a few years ago and now, now essentially my work is working in the courts I, I do I do psychological assessments for the court services in the criminal courts and also mums and dads, in the family courts who may have addiction problems and for whom their children may be getting removed. So people need an opinion as to, number one, what's their psychological health? And number two, are they willing to change as they move forward and can they provide a safe environment for their children? So that's essentially what I'm doing outside the Isle of Man. Uh,
0: And that initial interaction with the Isle of Man, obviously that's not a Manx accent you've got there, where, uh, where did that, that journey start?
2: Well, that journey actually started, I, I also ran the, um, uh, I'm interested in health, health psychology, what they call the psycho-oncology services for the Belfast Trust. And psycho-oncology, psycho-oncology is essentially, essentially helping people who've got cancer, who may have uh, psychological, all sorts of psychological difficulties dealing with the illness itself, dealing with uh, the potential of the illness, dealing with maybe the fear of, of the existential problems with it, all of that stuff. And the Isle of Man, people in the Isle of Man came and said, look, you've got this in Belfast. Everybody else has got it all over, all over the rest of the UK. They've got Maggie's centres and these sorts of things that help people who have got cancer from, at the psychological end of it. Can you come and set it up in the Isle of Man? That was 12 years ago. And since then, we developed Manx Cancer Help. We developed a service that uh, people with cancer of all sorts and all sorts of levels, but who were having real psychological problems, were able to come to us just outside Douglas. And, and, uh, and we, uh, we worked supervising the palliative care nurses and, and so on. And then um, that sort of evolved from Manx Cancer Help into what's now Minds Matter. And it's also evolved a little bit to helping other people with chronic illness um, who, who have got psychological issues attached to that. So it's sort of expanded from cancer to helping people with chronic illnesses deal with the mental health issues that invariably sometimes kick in.
0: Yeah. So just to go back to the manx cancer, those early days, was that is that helping people uh obviously with cancer but also or helping the people around that person the the support network Uh,
2: it's a good question i mean there's there's no doubt that that a person with cancer can develop uh depression more likely than if you haven't got cancer clearly depression and anxiety and so on can be associated with a diagnosis of cancer However, I have to say that there's a testimony to the human spirit that actually people who get diagnosed with cancer, once they begin to deal with the diagnosis, actually more do reasonably well. The the lifetime prevalence of depression in the general population is around 8 to 9%. The lifetime prevalence of depression in cancer patients is much higher than that. So it's actually quite humbling to... Talk to people who may have had a cancer diagnosis and to begin to see how how most people deal with it, and we mustn't we mustn't mix up one of the big things we learned when we came to the Isle of Man and developed the service that I'd, we mustn't mix up kind of sadness and fear and these normal human emotions that people get when they get cancer with right. clinical depression and so on. So uh, that was why we came. That was why I came in the first place, and. Yeah. And to answer your question as well, I'm waffling here a bit, but to answer your question, it wasn't just patients. Because the, the, the relatives of somebody who's got cancer, it's also very difficult because they don't know what to say. They sometimes don't know how to react. And sometimes they don't know what to do for the best. Sometimes they get fearful about their their loved one's future and we see this when your partner gets cancer but we also saw it sometimes with children whose mums and dads may have cancer presenting with real psychological difficulties and the other way around when parents perhaps lose it, young, a young child to cancer so it's not just the patient it's a whole family, family
0: yeah no i'm sure so yeah. just to dig in one of the one of our very early podcasts that Matt and I did was with a with a gentleman George Blackwell who's on our, our podcast he works with uh at I listen now on, on the island and is uh i think a trainee instructor I think is his title which is partly how our paths eventually connected to to this call today so perhaps uh you mentioned about man's cancer moving into the the aisle listen and my matters can you sort of elaborate on what's happening there the the what they're doing on Ireland for that and and your interaction with that as well from a, I believe it's uh, from a, like an evidence-based approach to it as well.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm what's grandly called the clinical lead being the consultant clinical psychologist, you know, and, uh, I sometimes wonder how I developed, how I got the title of professor, but you know, some, maybe I just talk. Well, I think really, you know, I think that's probably it. Uh, so in a sense, um, I'm the clinical uh, lead here. And the the issue here is that this is a charity. Essentially, essentially, Minds Matter, I Listen, is a charity. It used to be Minds Cancer Health. And sometimes charities, not just in the eye of man, but generally are seen as secondary to the the health service of the Department of Health and Social Care. And they're seen as providing an add-on service. And there may be, there, there may be seen with they don't perhaps traditionally have the kind of the management and the governance that the health service has. What third sector organisations and our charities, as they used to be called, are basically saying is that we can provide a service that is the therapists and all the people who work for us in in Minds Matter and I listen are as qualified if not or as qualified as you would get if you went into the health and social care services. We make a big deal out of having properly qualified, accredited, registered therapists. We make a really, really big deal about only doing treatment that is evidence-based, you know. We do treatment that's recommended by the medical journals I contribute to. The medical journals personally, as I know what evidence-based treatment is. We don't do we don't do you know woolly stuff. We don't do um, uh, aromatherapy and all that kind of thing. Not that I disagree with aromatherapy, and so on. Don't don't get me wrong, but we do we do proper proper evidence-based therapies by proper qualified therapists. So that the individual who attends us, whether they be the child or the, or, or the adult, knows that they're getting really high-quality intervention, as, as high-quality as they would get anywhere, probably even on occasions higher.
0: And I presume on the basis of evidence, evidence base that naturally the study is continually going on in, in, in the various areas, that ultimately it, it develops year on year, as we learn more and we develop more, so there's no set of rules that well, I'd imagine it's just ever-evolving and therefore forever interesting as well.
2: You're right. You're,
0: and challenging. You
2: know, you know, when I, well, you know, there was like, like for depression, ECT, when I started training, that electroconvulsive therapy was used for depression a lot. Hardly used at all now. Uh, was that electric
1: things? The,
2: the, yeah, the electric treatment as I told for uh, depression. That was, that was a big deal. That was I'll a be big deal. after it, I think. Yes. <laughs> I don't know whether I should say this, but it, 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 it's as long. I started a long time ago, and and even in those days, psychologists, and psychiatrists, and people in the Belfast City Hospital were treating people who had the illness of homosexuality, and they were showing them pictures of men and giving them shocks at the same time, and that was called shock therapy, and. So that sort of stuff was going on, and that was the seventies, and that was evidence based then. So it goes to show you're absolutely right. What, particularly in the area of mental health, the, the the we have to change. We have to understand what what is treatment, and what and what is mental illness. But what isn't mental illness is much more important as well, and. And we get hit with, like in the last six months, I've got hit with COVID. And there's new things emerging, the impact of COVID on on different demographics. How do we treat that? brilliant study by Justin the Lancet not so long ago, saying that there's very real mental health issues, among, particularly among women between the ages of uh, uh, about 18 and 30. And that so we didn't know that before we didn't know the impact of lockdown and the different demographics and, and how it impacted on people's mental health i tell you what we know a lot more now
0: uh, i I'm of interest then on that study why uh, whether you can recall why why more that group was there you know was it reasoned
2: oh the, we're still trying to grapple with why some people do well in lockdown and some people. Uh, I suspect at the beginning that, that 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 group who may who may be starting their careers, who may be going to university, who may be beginning relationships, with all of the sort of complexities of that that's going on, who may have other responsibilities as well to, to family. Uh, I don't know. The, the, it, it seemed to be the first lockdown in the UK was very very intrusive into into lifestyle. It was particularly. Um, people who had anxiety problems pre- before lockdown of one sort or another were most at risk. Uh, but it's given us food for thought in terms of actually um, the impact of uh, isolation and the and the impact of getting bits of your life just suddenly taken away on your on your psychological state. So I suppose the the, that example and the other ones I've given is an answer to your question that uh, psychological problems change over the years. Psychological problems are perceived differently over the years. Clearly, shock therapy is not given at all. ECT therapy is not as rarely given now. Uh, there's much more emphasis, for example, on on talking therapies now than there used to be, like behaviour. Behavior therapy, CBT and 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 schema focus therapy and that sort of stuff. Although there is still an over-reliance, in my view, perhaps on antidepressants and tranquilizers. I think that I may come on to this later, but I think that one of the big changes that I've seen on the addiction side of the house is that more and more people who I see for the courts, who I see in the addictions units. Are becoming addicted to prescription medication. This is a big deal now. The old image of the heroin addict or the uh, other uh, people who people experiment, of course, with cocaine and the rest, but but things like pregabalin, lyrica, you know, uh, diazepam, Xanax is coming into the animal. These are all kind of legitimate meds, if you like. They're, they're clearly bought on the street. But originally they were prescription medication. That's why they're called. Uh, these are becoming a huge issue in the addiction um, field. Those,
1: uh, sorry, with someone a bit of, lack of knowledge, there, is that like painkiller sort of prescription? There, those things.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. think something like pregabalin or Lyrica is, is essentially uh, an analgesic, uh, as indeed as indeed were the were the opioids. You know, uh, but but. It's an analgesic with really, really interesting and I have to say seductive psychological side effects that make it a drug of choice for some people who are using it far, far too heavily. So it's not just about pain relief, it's about it's about kind of euphoria, anti-anxiety, uh, uh, wrapping you in cotton wool is a wee bit like the opioids do, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, w- so there's, and then that the 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 other prescription drugs. I'm banging on here from different areas, but forgive me. It's, no, please. I suppose it it'll all cut together. Yeah. The prescription drugs that are very common. I just say a word now that we've diazepam. is hugely has been around since the 1970s, as you know. It's it's incredibly common among drug users. What we've got now there, it's called benzodiazepines. It's a family of drugs called like Ativan and all that. Uh, the uh, and trazodone they used to be used, but now we've got Xanax, you know. And Xanax has come into the south of the island a, a little bit on, uh, in the last year. How? And I think I think it was, just came from a number of families actually. And you can buy it on the dark web, and it's it's very attractive to youngsters. So we have a Xanax spike, and this is a heavy duty benzodiazepine. Like this is a benzo that is really Addictive Xanax is much more heavy duty than, for example, Diazepam, yeah. and we have a spike, and we still have, as far as I know, on the island.
0: We'll we'll dig in uh, shortly, a bit, I suppose, a bit more into that side, to specific. Uh, two things was our last podcast, Matt and I talked about. Uh, we were on a side, but one weren't we talking about uh, yeah, yeah. how to access Something the dark web? No. You tied that in nicely. Uh, not that we're suggesting people go on there and buy it. Uh, I just want to go back to the, the question you mentioned. I want to dig into why i listen in a moment a little bit more, but just that you mentioned about the, the isolation, and it just got me, or got me thinking about the sort of mental health effects of that. And then if you look at addiction, and, and the guy, Graham Klukas, that we spoke to a little while ago, who was an addict through his teenage years and, and into, an, into adult, he talked about the system that when he was an addict, they commit crime, and the, the natural, well, the, the path they end up down is in, in prison. So when you talk about isolation, uh, mental health, and which has come off the back of because of addiction, really driven them into getting arrested and being in prison. Is the prison, perhaps it's a very wide question, but is, is that system kind of fundamentally not, not the, the right way to work with someone who's an addict who's then committing crime and being punished by putting isolation in a prison and therefore feeding the mental health problems?
2: <laughs> yeah, well... Those three areas, prison isolation and drug and alcohol misuse are kind of interrelated. Like for example, in, where, in in the UK, alcohol sales, alcohol consumption per capita has gone up by 30% since lockdown. So lockdown, something in that area. What people are doing now is drinking far more, and it's associated with self-medication for lockdown. Uh, and in prisons, um, well, th- I've worked a bit on the Isle of Man prison and it's interesting, it's interesting the drugs there. The drugs in the Isle of Man prison are, hard, are harder to get than drugs in the rest of the UK, I think. The price in prison of, of uh, the equivalent amount of cannabis, for example, is almost as a, as a mark of four or five hundred percent, so it makes drugs in prison difficult. Very often what I see is one of my uh, an, an addict who's maybe addicted to alcohol or possibly diazepam or something like that uh, will go into prison and they'll have a withdrawal syndrome. They'll be suddenly taken off drugs and the withdrawal syndrome will kick in and this is, this lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks and it's, it's very very different and then they kind of sell. but there are unfortunately and sadly, Access to um, drugs in UK prisons, and I know where I work in Mugabe Prison in Belfast a lot. And sadly, there's no heroin, but there's a lot of cannabis. There's a lot of diasopan. There's a lot of progablan. There's a lot of that in the prisons. No, no alcohol. But uh, so it's not a safe haven. And sometimes, uh, and I, I think, look, I think that provided an individual. Um, has made some decisions before going into prison. And provided that they begin to engage, there are really good opportunities to deal with addiction in prison. Uh, UK Smart Recovery is a fabulous group and it has now it's got this, this program for prisons. So I'm, I, I'm not saying immediately that prison is bad for addicts. I think that if you're there and you can engage, there's some very good programs, really, really good programs that are operating in some of our prisons, and I want to make a plug here for UK Smart Recovery. It's a, it's a group program, it's a peer program, and it's a it's, it's, it's only 20 years old, but it's it's like it's like AA without necessarily the spiritual bit of it, you know. And I'm just working now in prisons, so but but by and large. My lords, in answer to your question, of course, if you've got an addiction, you should be treated in an addiction unit and avoid prison, where, 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 where necessary. If, however, you had an addiction and you've committed a crime, then then there's due process.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So just to um, uh, link back then to 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 Isle, listen, maybe expand a bit more on uh, the work you do there and the work you see there. Uh, yeah, and how, that, how, you know, how that's panning out, I guess.
2: Well, well as you know, I, I, well, there, there's two arms to the charity. Now, there's Minds Matter and there's I Listen. And essentially, Minds Matter is uh, the work I've been telling you about adults who've got psychological problems arising from serious, probably life-changing illness. And, and that's, that's one arm of the charity. The other arm is I Listen. And we were very fortunate to get funded. We did a lot of work. Uh, to we met very. Uh, I Andrea, the CEO, and I. Uh, I think we toured the most important people on the Isle of Man, I think I met the Prime Minister and I met the Governor and I. I met the Chancellor, of the Exchequer, and I, I think and I just met everybody who was important. And we had great conversations about the uh, impact of uh, listeners on children, and these aren't children with mental illness, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that in in schools, children nowadays have so much, so much to deal with, that there is, there's a spike in the addiction to uh, computer games, there's a spike in bullying, there's a spike in sort of a lack of control, family is not the kind of empowering safe haven that it perhaps used to be in uh, so the pressure on children and this is not children who are mentally ill the p- children who sadly self-harm and even maybe commit suicide are by and large not meant i did some research into the first child the youngest child who who committed suicide in England and, and, and she wasn't mentally ill she was being bullied at school and it it overwhelmed her and so we're aware that there's we're not trying to label people who are mentally ill, who are adolescents, go to the child and adolescent unit, you know, the people who have got autism or childhood schizophrenia or something like that are treated quite rightly. But there's a, a lot of children in between who haven't got necessarily a mental illness, but who are suffering and who need to trust somebody, perhaps outside the school, maybe outside the family. And and it's this 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 sort of middle group that I listen or targeting
1: through the listeners. And without doing a blanket statement there, why do you, why do you see that middle group as it were uh, increasing recently? Is that because of the rise of let's say social media and rather than talking to people, they're always, uh, you know, off on their own world on, you know, looking at their phone rather than looking at someone they should be talking to or something like that. or. The,
2: that's a good question. And, and they're complex issues. I think the, the incidence of child and maybe early adolescent distress is undoubtedly more now. I think all the research would show that. As to the cause of it, I think that you're you're probably right. I think the fact that the, perhaps the family aren't the, the kind of entity that it once was. It's much more fragmented now. I think that the so obviously social media. Uh, uh, clearly, it's it's the one-to-one interactions are, are and and it's infinitely harder to deal with bullying in the in the privacy of your own bedroom than it is to deal with bullying and perhaps in an environment at school. My also big concern for the first time in the, in the history of diagnoses of mental illness, gambling is a what we call a DSM five. Uh, diagnosis officially but for the first time gaming disorder is now an official diagnosis and gaming disorder is something pr- primarily younger people are doing beginning to lose both money and time and friends and so on so it's 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 another problem the 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 availability of drugs I mentioned xanax Xanax was aimed at kids don't Get me wrong, these are these are kids, so, so so whereas in the olden days we might have had a, a pint of cider or, or sherry in the park, you know, and that was that was the problems. Now we have got um powerful benzodiazepines being aimed at young youngsters,
1: and is that being aimed at them because of the when you when you refer to gaming, that's the, the let's say video games, social media, whatever it is, so they're taking them so they can be. Being on them for longer be i don't know, however you want to be like um, in that focus, you know someone who wants to stay up till three four o'clock in the morning, gaming or whatever it will be that they're they're taking this they're
2: they're what sorry I missed that last quick there so what you said there
1: that the there's an increase yeah. in, in the gaming side, and you're saying the the rise of xanax that's in there is that is that because they're interlink there that we no, had to take them no. in order to stay on longer to be gaming no, as no. Well, because the addiction.
2: No, I, I'll draw a distinction between the two. I mean, I was just I was using the kind of uh, them as added pressures on youngsters. No, that 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 there is, uh, uh, and I could quote you figures from lectures that I do, but but there's increasingly um, a younger age people taking particularly um, this type of. We call them in Belfast, or or Xanax, we call them uh, blues, and most of the kids I see who are in prison at 20 for the courts will tell me that they started using cannabis at 13, they started using blues, and yellows blues are uh, 10 milligram Dazepam tablets on the street, and yellows are 5 milligram, and they would say they started using these at 13 and 14 perhaps. That sort of pressure now, and then if if you re- introduce something like Xanax, which we find in Sydney, St. Port St. Mary and um, in the south of the island, uh, uh, these these this is heavier duty benzodiazepines. Uh, so these th- these are pressures on young people that didn't quite exist 20 years ago. I'm separating that out from gaming. It's another potentially addiction, but it's it's it's, uh, it's a sort of separate behavioural addiction. But, it's the, but the problem is with gaming, you buy what they call skins, and therefore it becomes, it becomes closer and closer to gambling, but into a different demographic.
1: Yeah, I do. So, uh, I do a little bit of gaming myself, so I'm, a, I'm aware of the. Uh, I don't fall into that pit, but as you said, the uh, microtransactions and the. Uh, as you said rolling the dice as it were for these fifa packs or Fortnite, whatever the latest thing that everyone's playing just spending a lot of exactly. money a different colored thing and the way they market it to always be making sure that the kids are wanting the latest one spending the money and playing the hour so yeah yeah, yeah. so
2: these are very well described these these are well these are additional pressures that make i listen really important that perhaps you know the, the the previous generations of of, of, of adolescents didn't have to uh, deal with so so I listen and in terms of giving giving an outlet to people who are trapped in some of these areas is uh, is terribly important
1: yeah, you can,
2: you can yourself see how how gaming could be addictive and if you're a, if you' have an adolescent mind you can see how profoundly addictive it could be absolutely.
0: I, I, yeah, I know they, they obviously on the Isle of Man, they do a lot of work in the schools and given that, I suppose that uh, safe space is probably not quite the right term, but for people, youngsters to go and talk if they want to talk and chatting to the That's guys true. there, they, you know, I, I couldn't imagine at 14 even opening up and talking about uh, any of that to someone, but they, they certainly seem to be making progress and uh, they're seeing as they go back more and more with these supposed touch points of going back and children being more and more comfortable with the, the was, they're strangers to a to a point in regard to family, but they're, they're creating that environment where they can talk and, and then add value and get the child to talk, which I assume is probably most of the battle.
2: Hundred percent. You know, I, I I take my hat off. I mean the, the the listeners aren't that highly qualified, you know, but they're they're highly supervised. They're completely supervised in terms yeah. of on terms of ensuring that if there are real sort of mental health problems, that they're re referred to the right area and all of that yeah. stuff. I understand uh, well, a lot
0: of them, yeah, are kind of I suppose mid training really, and this is part of that that yeah, whether yeah. they're trained to be a psychologist or whatever that might be, and this is part of, of that. right.
2: So, yeah. So
0: to switch the, or to, to move on then, maybe to we touched just before we came on here. Matt and I in in chatting with uh sports people particularly and a few of the more generic kind of just interesting story podcasts, we've come across uh addiction. So just starting with that as a as a as a subject heading if you had to define what, what that is, could you define it in your words, addiction? Addiction?
2: Yeah. Well, I guess my best piece of research was developing the short alcohol dependence questionnaire, which is used now all over the world, and uh, it actually measures addiction, it measures it measures dependence, whether it be on a drug or on a behaviour like gambling, you know, so essentially there's, there's about five, five or six different components of addiction. Number one is that there's some physical components. As you become more addicted, you develop more withdrawal symptoms. That's the first thing. So let me take alcohol as an example. As you become more addicted, you wake up in the morning with shakes, slight shakes. It gets worse as you, as you go on. You have night sweats and sometimes you have perceptual disturbances so that's the first sign second sign is if you get the shakes in the morning and a hangover is not a withdrawal effect by the way a hangover is just dehydration don't don't worry about hangovers but if you start getting the shakes in the morning what do you do you have a drink in the morning you need five units of alcohol only five that's equivalent to two and a half pints or or five units would be equivalent to couple of couple of double gins in a little bottle before you go to work and the shakes go away. So you're grand until about lunchtime or or one or one o'clock. So that's called relief use. And that's essentially use to stop the withdrawal symptomatology. That's the second sign. The third sign is tolerance. For most drugs, with some some notable examples, the more you take the more you need to achieve the same effect. So if you're a novice drinker a couple of pints and you're hammered If you're becoming quite dependent you need eight or nine pints and that's that applies to most drugs You need more. That's called tolerance Doesn't apply to some though that, and it, The drugs it doesn't apply to are not addictive in the slightest like LSD hallucinogenics aren't addictive at all so and, and, and cannabis is not that particularly addictive because cannabis users will say that they don't really need more and more and more to achieve the same effect. If you're, you can actually achieve the same effect by pretty much the same amount over time. So, so heroin's incredibly addictive because you need more and more and more. Alcohol, you need more. So there's a continuum of addictiveness. So there's, that's the third sign that your tolerance builds up. You need more of the drug just to get the same hit.
0: I assume that. The, sorry, just interrupt that, that. No, no, that growth effect. That I assume if something doesn't. So cannabis be an example where, you know, you, you don't need more to get that same high. But I assume you can. The the definition of uh, addiction around that
2: remains the same. Um, the same intrinsically, intrinsically, there are some drugs that are intrinsically more addictive like alcohol, like heroin, like barbiturates and particularly like benzodiazepines I was talking about. These are very addictive substances in as much as you need more and more and more to have the same hit. Crack cocaine, incredibly addictive. You need more to have the same hit. Um, cannabis is addictive in a more psychological way. Uh, and and, and, and those, are the, those are the main physical signs of addiction I was telling you about. The psychological signs of addiction are called something called salience, and that basically is a big word for meaning. The more you get addicted, the more it trumps other important stuff in your life. It trumps family, it trumps your job, it trumps your health, and you give priority to getting the drug, and that's called sal- and that gets more and more apparent, the more addictive you get.
0: Um, what was that name again? Sorry. Cause I know and, and listeners, there's a little zip every so often, which is just the zoom connection. So apologies. What was the name of that again?
2: That was, that was called salience of drug seeking okay. behavior. The word, and then the other one is narrow. It was called narrowing of repertoire. And this is a really interesting one. The more addicted you get to any substance, let's say it, any substance, the more a Wednesday looks like a Saturday. You know, if you're not addicted to alcohol, you get hammered on a Saturday night and you probably don't drink for the rest of the week and that's grand, you know, happy days. But if you're getting addicted to alcohol, every day, it's, quite, it's narrowing of repertoire. Every particular day begins to look the same. You start at the same time. You drink the same beverage, probably. And, and, and a Wednesday looks like a Sunday, looks like a Thursday, looks like a Saturday. So that narrowing of repertoire is an interesting sign of addiction.
0: And that 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 narrowing is that you've obviously talked about drink or drugs there. Is that any addiction that same thing would happen? So it might be we talked about gaming earlier, that the Wednesday you don't know if it's a Saturday because it's the same. You get up, you do your you do your habit, whatever that might be.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the same for gambling, it's the same for all addictions. We we can measure how addicted you are to gambling in the same way, particularly Gambling as tolerance, gambling are some of the even the, the physical things I talked about. Uh, so yeah, we, we now know that any substance use disorder is a common term now that's used. And gambling use, gambling disorder are, 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 are the same sort of thing, you know. They're the same sort of thing. One happens to be a drug and the other happens to be a behaviour. But the signs that I just outlined to you are common across both.
0: Yeah. And is it? I presume it's really. Uh, obviously, you've got a, a measurement ability. How? Uh, I suppose two questions really. One question I had, which was when when you, I don't I don't think I've been an addict of anything. So then the question becomes: Will I ever understand that how a, an addict's mind works? Because if I want to stop doing something, principally, I'll just go. Right, I've got to stop drinking coffee because it's not good for me. If, if coffee's the example, or, or gambling because it's not good for me, uh, and I can switch that. I call it a habit off. I presume when you when I look at then an addict, it's like, well, stop doing that. It's just it's just a, a decision that you make in your head, and therefore, me, you know, maybe arguably not having that addict nature is that. Well, I never understand how an addict's brain works to go. Well, just stop doing it. Just stop taking. them.
2: Wow. That's an interesting one. It raises lots of questions, that one. It raises the question, is there an addictive personality that you're lucky to have not got? It raises the question, if you are an addict, can you suddenly change overnight? It's what a very famous psychologist, Bill Miller, once called quantum change, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Fascinating stuff. Uh, And it raises the question, are you born an addict or are you made an addict? I'll give you one example. Uh, in America, and you know, in the Vietnam War, there was there was availability of heroin, really good quality heroin, in Vietnam at the time. And you had these soldiers, these Vietnam veterans, who were away from their family, from the supportive family. They were in a war zone, so there was a lot of stress. Uh, they they had a lot of peers who were using heroin. Seventy percent of them became heroin addicts. so they weren't, they didn't have an addiction personality, they were just, there was a set of circumstances that made them into addicts. The interesting thing is when they came back to the States, the overwhelming majority stopped pretty much like that, but they were addicts in every sense of the word at that particular time. So is there an addictions personality? Jury's out. Is uh, the fact that a person becomes addicted because of a set of circumstances? Probably uh, and can you suddenly at, at a single point give up an addiction a teachable moment or what AA call rock bottom and uh, uh, there's good there's evidence for that lots of people help by through rehab and so on and we've got to be careful when we're detoxing but the fundamental questions I think that you raised there are interesting.
0: Yeah. So, so interestingly, then. So, to expand a little bit on environment. So, from the bits I've read about addiction, that <clears throat> there's no real, I suppose, clear. You either it's potentially partly genetic, partly environmental, and certainly if it's more from again from my limited reading from a from a younger age of you are in an environment that that isn't right that. Uh, Because again, I go back to the guy we spoke to, Graham, where we talked to him about he was he had some learning difficulties and was therefore always pushing back. Perhaps he wasn't in the perfect family environment uh, himself either. And I think I asked him if if I was you with my genes and my makeup, would I've gone down the path that he went down to to drugs, to heroin, to rock bottom, to setting himself on fire, to end up in a psych clinic? Uh, or would I have taken a slightly different path because my genes are slightly different, albeit my environment that I was brought up in was him. And I think when I look at environment, I, I can't remember he had a brother, but I'd imagine twins brought up in the same environment if they're genetically the same. They still go down different paths, so the environment must play a obviously an important factor in that.
2: Yeah. It, it, it's very clear. I mean, environment can work in different ways and it can be interpreted in different ways, as can genetics there's there's no doubt that uh, the son or daughter of a person who's got a drink problem is more likely to have a drink problem themselves equally the son or daughter of a person of um, parents who are totally abstinent are more likely to have a drink problem so you could argue that the the fact that the mum the or dad has a drink problem there's a genetic element to that but the fact that The parents are totally abstinent as mine were. And uh uh you're not given you're not if if your parents are totally absent and very religious, for example, as as mine were, you're not given a proper model of how to drink during your early adolescence, and then when you're 18, you become an addict. So if you see what I mean, so there's 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 an interesting interplay between what could be perceived as Genetics on the one hand or inheritance and the environment, on the other hand, the Vietnam vets weren't all genetically predisposed to be aeronautics, it's 70 of them became. So there is an interesting interplay. Um, and all of us in this field hesitate to put numbers. We don't we hesitate to say that ah, 50% is genes, 50% is environment. It's a combination of both, but environment is very powerful.
0: I I mean, just listening to to the Vietnam story, you'd, you'd assume uh, the element of that must be must be environmental in the basis they're trying to deal with the circumstances they're in. And I would assume it's some kind of escape mechanism for them in their head from what's going on around them. I don't know, but uh, and therefore it's not maybe less the addiction driving it, and more the the environment and the circumstances are driving it. Albeit if they're enjoying. The, the mental break from the war, should we say, by go, by, or it softens the impact yeah. on the mind, that that's why they, they keep taking it while they're in that environment. And when they come out of it, they can switch that switch off. I don't, I don't know. Yeah,
2: just one last point on that. I mean, these people were seriously addicted. They weren't just taking it for self-medication in a sort of judicious okay. way. They had the withdrawal symptomatology. They had cold turkey when they came off. They, okay. they had tolerance. They had all the signs of addiction, you know. Yeah. But they, most of them didn't come off
0: it. You're right. Where, where, that that raises an interesting question, actually, because when you look at anything us humans do, it's typically born through, you know, it, as we've evolved. What, what, why, as a human, have we, have we an, an addictive inbuilt somewhere in us? Because it, does it provide value somewhere else in life, in, in things? Because <laughs> uh, surely as a human race, we'd have grown out of it if it adds no value.
2: I mean, it's not adaptive in a Darwinian sense. Uh, um, and I'll tell you what the core the core question in addiction is. And there's journal after journal. I've been editing addiction journals for more years than I care. Remember, there's loads of journals. and there's, But the core question about addiction comes down to a, discre- a, a, a distinction between compulsion and volition. And by what what, what I mean is that Compulsion is a kind of a, a obviously as the word says, a compulsion to use a drug and that you don't have much control over. That's what AA think. AA see drug addiction or alcoholism as a disease. And you've got got an absolute compulsion. On the other side of that coin is volition choice. You can choose you can't choose. And the discrepancy and the interaction between volition on the one hand and compulsion on the other hand is the essence of addiction. And as you move down the volition towards the compulsion, that's, as you, uh, that's uh, when you become more, uh, more addicted. You can call compulsion craving or something like that. But that's the key question.
0: Okay. So looking at, uh, we talked about genes and the environment. Uh, of things. One of the things co- seems to be a common uh, theme that I, that I see uh, and from what I listen to as well around addiction is it often comes out of trauma during a, during those early years of your life. Is that a common thing thing you see in them from a psychologist and yeah. that, that area as well? Something that, that that comes out a lot?
2: I think that people do... Self-medicate. There's no doubt, and I think that there's ways that we have. There's a scale called the ACE scale, which is the Adverse Childhood Event scale. So we've got we've got very sophisticated, sophisticated ways now of assessing childhood trauma. For example, the key components of childhood trauma, and we do see how as people move into adolescence and adulthood, how some can use Alcohol and drugs to self-medicate because of the uh, the trauma. Um, the tra- trauma is 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 incredibly interesting, and 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 there's some evidence that suggests that that serious serious traumas can have lead to sometimes in its most extreme way, post-traumatic stress disorder. But what can kind of contribute to perhaps self-medication through psychotropic substances of one sort or another, or what's called hassles. And these are kind of mini traumas, but they pile and pile and pile on. That's the that's the key first important thing. And if I would say one thing that's really important in this. In the 1970s, they had the Ray scale of trauma, R-A-H-E. You can Google that. But basically, it gave you points. You know, if you had the death of a spouse, you got 100 points. And if you lost your job, you had you had uh, 70 points. And then if you had uh, 280 points in the last two years, you had it, you know. Good night, Irene. You you had so much trauma. What we've realised since is not trauma per se that causes adult mental health issues or, or adult self-medication through drugs. It's how you interpret the trauma. So it's... If, and that- I start coming a sense of control.
0: interpretation differs from people to people.
2: It differs from people to people, but it also differs in terms of how much control you have in the old days. Divorce got you, I forget, I mean 80 points, irrespective of whatever happened. However, if you're the person who's instituting the divorce, the reality is, you get far less points than if you're the person who's been divorced and having the clue why you're getting divorced. The issue here isn't the the trauma per se; it's the extent of control you have over the trauma. For example, in a road traffic accident, you're more likely to get traumatized if you see the accident happening in the two seconds it takes than if you have your back to the accident. So. If you are out of control and you do nothing, that that makes similar traumas different. So the idea there's a guy called uh, Martin Seligman, and he called depression learned helplessness, which is a key a key word. Depression is in a sense having trauma without any control over
0: it. So it's part of when you look at rehab. Uh, or rehabilitation is getting uh, there is a reason I'm asking this particular phrase this way. It's empowering the people to
2: get that power back. Absolutely. Yeah. Somebody once said to me, what are you in the business of, are you in the business of trying to make people happy as a psychotherapist? Do you, are you in the business of peddling happiness? And I say, nope, if you want happiness, go and smoke, go and smoke a bit of weed. And um, don't come to me. And they said, "Well, are you in the business of, uh, of peddling contentment." And I said, "No, no, no. I'm not in the business of peddling contentment either. If you want, if you want content, go out, go out and talk to some mates, or go to watch Liverpool beat Leeds United, or something like that." And they said, "Well, what are you then as a psychotherapist in the health service? What are you, what are you peddling?" And I said, "I'm peddling control." I'm feeling control. I'm trying to give people, whether they're addicted, whether they're depressed, whether they have trauma, whether they have even, strangely, paradoxically, OCD, obsessive compulsive sort, of, and in a way, I'm trying to get them to get a sense of control back in little ways. And that's what cognitive behavior therapy is all about. And that's what mindfulness is all about. Mindfulness is getting control, living, living. For the corpe day, living for the
0: day, with a sense of control at that moment. The reason, reason I ask that question is Graham and the work he does. The, the gentleman we, we chatted to a, uh, a month or two back, who'd been through problems, he talked about. Again, I mentioned the prison question earlier, and he, he obviously felt that didn't help him in his his ability to be able to recover. But he talked about these pillars for empowerment to get back on back on the on the path. Uh, and fun enough, you just mentioned mindfulness. We chat. We've chatted to a few people around that subject as well, and the importance of uh, importance of that side of it as well. So yeah, all ties in. Nice. So uh, to move on a little bit, just I know you touched on earlier around that you don't necessarily look at the uh, meditation, hypnosis space, perhaps with the with the I listen hat on. But generally, from your own perspective, is that something that you to always encourage people to to explore for themselves if they've got or say addiction or mental health problems. That that's something they should should explore to see if it works or helps them. Not works. Well, yeah, it works.
2: Yeah. I, as I mean, I, I would I would answer that in two ways. I, I mean, I've been doing psychotherapy for, as I say, more years than I care to remember, in, in mental health settings and in health service in the national health service mental health settings and in addiction settings and in in physical health settings. You know, and what I've realised over the years is, no, one hat doesn't fit all, and the approach that you take with one person may be completely inappropriate for another, and, and the secret of psychotherapy is that sometimes it's an art, it's it's engaging with an individual and looking at what suits them, and to use your example, sometimes you would encourage someone to explore hypnosis, you know, and and maybe that might work for them for others it would be profoundly problematic for people who are control freaks suddenly to say well i think you would uh, benefit from hypnosis it would drive them over the edge you know so one hat doesn't fit all but the beauty of cognitive behavior therapy for depression for example associated with with antidepressants don't get me wrong i think there's a, there's for depression particularly CBT and antidepressants for people who are seriously depressed, who have no control, that's that's the advised treatment. That's the evidence-based treatment for depression.
0: Oh, okay. So, so just to okay. maybe uh, talk a little bit about CBT, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, is that a fairly new concept or is that becoming just more, mainstream is not the right word, but more of a...
2: Oh, it is it's more mainstream, basically, basically because the National Institute for Clinical Excellence is a nice program, you know that that, that guides it's guidance, but it's more than guidance. It's, it outlines how we should deal with how the health service should work and all. I think that a few years ago they had their thousands set of guidance, and some of them are mental health guidance quite a lot of that thousand are mental health one way or another guidance and the guidance is invariably to use CBT. So it's become it's become evidence based because it's it's advised through the through the through the evidence and the literature and the journals that they 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 kind of synthesize and then push it out and say you have to use this. Um, it's been around for a hell of a long time though it's been around since the 1920s. People got disillusioned by Freud who, who took 20 years to perhaps treat someone and say everything was about loving your mother that type of stuff you know, and they and sat on a couch and they sort of punctificated I think there's a place for that sort of thing psychoanalysis, don't get me wrong but as a response to that people said come on, we've got to look behaviourally, we've got to look at what people tick we've got to look at the triggers of their behaviour we've got to look at how they interpret their behaviour and that's that behaviour therapy morphed into CBT, probably as a direct sort of um, result of people becoming maybe slightly disillusioned with the kind of the traditional Freudian type interpretation, interpretive stuff. CBT is much more about the present, much more about how you, how you deal with your world and giving you control. So that
0: must be quite interesting then, because I guess CPT then, if you're dealing on almost on an individual basis, so th- you're getting people to think about why do you think this way? And if it's pushing you down, I guess, a negative path, if that's causing your mental health problems, it's building triggers, I assume, to move people in another direction or the, the better direction.
2: Very powerful. I, I did a study on CBT and people who are in a hospice having palliative care. And using the principles CBT, people who were dying within the next two years, who were depressed for obvious reasons, and we used CBT in that setting. I trained nurses how to do it. didn't wasn't didn't take a long time, you know, using basic CBT principles, and we had we had really really good results, even in a hospital setting, in terms of people who got tiny bits of control. You think if you're dying in two years' time or one year' time, you have no control. You do. You can redevelop, reinterpret stuff. And even in that setting, CBT was powerful. Amazing. Uh, so, yeah, it's about, it's about looking at your world. It's looking at the impact of all the thoughts and all the behaviours and all the things that are around you and then kind of teaching you ways to reevaluate those. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant, yeah. superb treatment.
0: Well, I guess if we're, if we're touching that that terminology and going that these are the circumstances to or get used in, I assume just, how's the best way to describe this? Someone who's on a playing field, working, you know, the, everything's fine. They, let's, let's just use a paraphrase. They they haven't considered any mental health issues. They're in business. They want to develop their skills and. That CPD is just can be, isn't, doesn't have to be used in, a, in this, let's use the negative environment or this environment of difficulty. It can be someone just looking to improve their own skill sets. And perhaps sometimes they say in business, they're maybe struggling to commit to decisions. That CPD training might help them work on that mindset.
2: Absolutely. Look, you see most of the self help books you read based on, on life coaches. And all that sort of stuff. It's almost invariably based on CBT principles, and the principles of the last thirty years and have evolved. But exactly as you say, there's there's uh, there's a limited number of strategies that help you change your behaviour for the better. Some researchers, called Prochaska and DiClemente, identified about ten strategies. You know, catharsis, uh, social learning from others. Uh, company and stuff like that essentially these are largely encapsulated on cbt so the self-help books the life coaching books are are a strand of cbt as are the therapies for profoundly or for ill people in the uh, health service so you're right it's a kind of it's not so much a a, a therapy as a kind of way of uh, a, a philosophy if you like a way of looking at the world and, and that's incorporated right
0: across the board. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably what triggered the question. Listening to you now, and just stuff from self-help, some motivational, and, and leadership books that I've read. That c- it seems that that CPD is the same. I use the very simplistic terms of trying to re- rewire your brain a little bit in the in the direction you want it want it to go in.
2: So I've one, I've one, I've one example for you, that you might be interested about how control actually can change your brain. It actually can change your brain. There's a new the, 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 all the advances in neuropsychology show how if you have a, if you have a sense of control, it can actually change your brain and change you physically. And I'll just give you one example. This might be interesting. Ian Robertson, the professor of clinical psychology, like like me, only he's a lot better looking than I am, and he's a lot cleverer than I am, and he works in Trinity. But he wrote a uh, he wrote a book called The Winner Effect, and he quoted data. That uh, this is interesting data that Nobel Prize winners live five years longer than no, no 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 Nobel Prize winners live two years longer than Nobel nominees, and Oscar Prize winners live five years longer than Oscar nominees. Now there's no physical difference between an Oscar Prize winner and an Oscar. They all eat lettuce and they all they all people look in and they have helicopters and swimming pools, you know, the Oscar, all of that stuff. So why do the people who win it actually live longer than the people who are nominated? And it's nothing to do with drugs or smoking. It's because suddenly you have more control. You have profound levels of control. that, And and it's about that, that that impacts not only on your mental state, but also at times on your actual physical state, you know. This lovely interplay between physical and mental and and that's a long winded way of saying that C B T is this this philosophy of care that impacts at all sorts of levels.
1: Sorry, just just a question I have what what control are they having there?
2: They if you win an Oscar, it's like if you're if, if you become Dame Shirley Bassey or something and it's supposed to ordinary Shirley Bassey, you phone a restaurant and they say, we've got no table tonight. Well, I'm actually Dame Shirley Bassey. Oh, yeah, we've got the best one on the corner. Yeah, because
1: <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I've been thinking of there is that when we've been, you've been talking about control is, I guess, how you measure it with that, that, with that loss of it. Um, especially into the terms where where it goes into the addiction and loss of control, control of what in terms of trying to correct it. Measure. I know you could probably speak for a, a long, long time on it, but for someone, I guess, how easy is it to find with someone who's potentially lost that control, of the markers, or you, you know, when you you were to say sit down and talk to someone to to for them to understand or make them realise control they may or may not have had in their usual daily life is no longer there in, in that if you understand
2: yeah um i'll give you an example from our study in in the hospice for people who were dying who had lost control who said i'm going to die in two years and give up and we're depressed and we're on antidepressants and part of the work was very simple it was just it, it wasn't saying Go become a brain surgeon and get control that way. It was actually saying maybe you could write a letter to an old friend, or maybe you could look at moving your chair from the ward out to the balcony, or maybe you could look at tiny ways of beginning to have a bit more control over your day to day regime. Control the idea of beginning to regain control starts at the very bottom of the ladder, it's not suddenly giving people tasks that they can't do. I'll never become an airline pilot, you know. I, I would love to, and that would be really controlling if I could suddenly do that. But, like, that's unlikely. I'm never going to develop a relationship with Jennifer Aniston. I would love to do it, and that would give me mass control. But it's not likely. And I'm told that Jennifer Aniston doesn't really talk about me much, you know. So it's like it's a non-starter. But I well, let me can... go and ask her now, she you On just not sure. <laughs> yeah. But I can get controlled by writing a Christmas card to somebody I've never, I haven't talked to for years. AA have got a lovely handle on this. One of their steps is that you get control back by writing a letter to people that you may have harmed over the years. So control, control isn't about massive things. It's about just incrementally getting a sense of control. And that's so important in lockdown. And that's the, the therapy that I'm doing, the psychotherapy we do in lockdown can focus on getting little bits of control back in your day. So that's that's essentially, that's essentially what we're all about.
0: Why is the uh, why is the human nature of that of the the control? What what's again? I go back to our, our as a species. We you know we develop well, and grow. What I, what's the, what's our in, inner need to have that control?
2: I, I'll t- well, I'll tell you, it's inner needs to adapt. We're back to Darwin here. I'll tell you a story about the executive monkeys. You might think. What's he all about now? Executive monkeys. Well, there's, there's probably wouldn't get ethical approval now, but because back a few years, and they said they had these two monkeys in, in cages, right? One, and they gave them the same amount of stress. They they shocked the bottom of the cage of each monkey, so each monkey had the same amount of stress. But in one cage, there was a handle that the monkey learned it could turn off the stress. For both monkeys, so on the other cage, there was no handle at all. The monkeys with the handle, both monkeys had the same stress, but the group of monkeys with the handle had far less ulcers. They had far less uh, anorexia. They had far less uh, a raft of things that we would sort of anthropologically look as human mental health. So the idea of of that sense of control has profound um, uh, uh, evolutionary advantages as well as everything else. The monkeys with control have far, far better health and live longer, and all sorts of things. So there's something very innate within us as human beings that if we if we become, contr- I tell you what, the best predictor of suicide is not depression. The best predictor of suicide is hopelessness, no control. So it's adaptive.
0: Yeah, interesting. That's really interesting.
2: Uh, uh so uh, we're taught we're taught we're taught all the way along if we want to do a risk analysis for who maybe is at risk of suicide, we don't give a depression test. We give what's called the Beck hopelessness inventory and that measures just what I'm talking about, hopelessness. And that's a bigger risk predictor
0: I wonder, like again back to I suppose that that control and why 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 us humans need that or why that's why that's wired in us from from being apes to how we are today. Why, why that? Because, again, you think about often things that are inbuilt in this because, you know, flight or fight modes from the caveman kind of inbuilt into human psyche and why that controls inbuilt into our psyche. You know? Well,
2: you've, you've, yeah, I think you've hit, hit the nail on the head there. Fight and flight is a form of control. Sitting there waiting to be... Uh, Caught
1: oh. by the tiger
0: is a sense of
2: helplessness. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what? Sorry, just What's the
1: difference there between depression and hopelessness? Are they not kind of in, in, interlinked in that sort of sense that if you, you, I guess when you think of the depression from well, again, no, no, psychologist, there is some form of helplessness or 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 that. Negative, I guess, kind of negative space in that sense.
2: Yeah, uh, you're you're right. I mean, depression, as I said earlier, was turned by a guy called Seligman as learned helplessness. And essentially, if you think of if you think of the celebrities, for example, who have committed suicide in recent years, this idea of of, of thinking that there's absolutely no way out—they're they're completely helpless. Uh, is 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 central to the narrative that we hear afterwards, um, and I, I do think you're right. I do think depression and helplessness are interlinked, but very specifically, the idea of loss of control, which is eighty percent of helplessness of, of depression, uh, but that in its own is even even a, a better predictor of self harm. One other thing I would I would say to you here is that we've got to be when you're running a service like we are doing at I Listen and and um, Minds Matter, you've got to be really 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 careful about self harm and about risk and about when ultimately an individual finds themselves at the end of their total tether and lack of control. We've got, to be, we've got to be really clear about when to refer them on and also how to assess risk. And one of the slightly interesting things and things that we don't really understand is that a person who successfully, for example, may commit suicide does so not when they're at the depths of their depression, but when they're actually getting better. And we've got to be really careful and get a kind of handle on this uh, that um, uh, it's not simple. The automatic thing is to think, oh, you're at the, de- the bottom, that's when you commit suicide. But actually it's when you're getting better that you realise uh, you're improving mentally but you've no control and then you've got the, well, the will or the motivation to self-harm. So it's the, the, the interplay between depression, helplessness, hopelessness and control is fascinating. I made you so, guys. I made you guys quiet.
0: now, sorry. Yeah, no, I wasn't sure because uh, Matt, Matt was on speaker. There, you were just going to. Yeah, no, yeah,
1: no, that, That's what I was just going to ask. There is that the um, the point you raised there of the act of actually the self-harm and suicide is when people are starting to improve, and that's what I was going to say. Is about is it is it because at that point they feel they have, in a sense, control and therefore control over the action that they would then. Go through with it in, in in that sense, I guess.
2: I think they've a. Uh, I think when you're the very very depths of a proper clinical depression, one of the key features is called anhedonia. And anhedonia is the opposite of hedonia. Ad- you have absolutely no ability to to have pleasure, none. And the other thing that's very much a feature of a proper de- of deep depression is is complete lack of motivation. To the extent that you're not even motivated to self-harm you know you just you're not even thinking you're just completely anhedonic and then as you get better you realize you, number one your motivation to do stuff increases but number two your perceptions become more acute and then the perception that you don't have control becomes more acute than when you're at the very very depths at the bottom and that's why the, probably the danger period is when you're actually coming out of the depression
0: yeah. um and um, so yeah 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 so uh when we look at uh when we talk about addiction we talk about drugs uh drinks whatever that might be when you look at and we we chatted to a number of sports people when you look at that addictive nature that's then perhaps manifests in other ways so uh, and we see examples where it might be that uh, they train too much for example how how difficult is it to or is it still the principle still the same where i wouldn't say it's not a negative impact but taking a load of heroin and having that addictive nature to me anyway seems a lot worse than you know training seven days a week thinking about you know their sport and not not getting not getting a break from it is that is that dealt with differently? Is that still, I presume it's still considered an addiction, even though it's the negative impacts are are different, perhaps still as bad, but just in a different way, maybe?
2: Yeah. There's a guy guy, uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Diseasing of America. And in it, he argued that the the 12-step thing, the 12-step model, was used to treat almost any compulsive behaviour you know, the idea that it just was for alcoholics or heroin addicts. But uh, he said that, that they have 12 Steps in America for compulsive shoppers. They have 12 Steps in America for compulsive sex addicts. They have 12 Steps in America for now, uh, what they now call, this, this This term was generated 30 years ago by, uh, by a guy called Workaholics. Uh, they have... Um, so there's a compulsive component to people who overtrain. There's a there's a compulsive component to people who who have eating disorders. To be fair, a lot of the common things. So it crosses. It does cross a lot of uh, uh, behaviours. Uh, officially, workaholism or sex addiction or shopping addiction aren't necessarily official diagnostic categories, but the same principles apply. And in, in his book, The Diseasing of America, he he covers a whole raft of, of this type of compulsive behaviour that people do but don't necessarily want to do. But there's a compulsion to do it. And in sports people, uh, well, i tell you what, there's a lot of people who once they come to the end, and uh, we have a few Northern Ireland footballers who who become serious gambling problems post-career, career, career mm. uh, yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting, I'm getting an echo now.
0: That might be me. Sorry.
2: All right. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So this idea of addiction coming back to it, and uh, uh, is that it can, um, it, and the the principles that I explained earlier on in our chat can apply to uh, a raft of behaviours. Some of which are, to be fair, more healthy than others. As probably more healthy to have addiction to the gym and addiction to exercise than it is to have an addiction to heroin but uh the same kind of seven elements or five or six elements that i explained before as to what constitutes an addiction probably still apply
0: yeah and that's kind of kind of the question i was getting at so yeah. uh yeah, I don't know if you have any more questions, Matt. I, I mean, I appreciate you spending, spending some time. I apologise to listeners. There's, I don't know if you guys are picking up. There's just a crackle every so often, which is just, just the internet connection, I think. Uh, but uh, it doesn't just really disrupt the, the the voices. So hopefully uh, it's not too uh, annoying in people's ears listening to it. So, no, I appreciate your time, Robin. It's been uh, really fascinating chatting yeah, to you. thank you very much. Thank you. you
2: thank have, you very much, Lads. It was uh, It was a joy. joy. And, and I, I, have to, say, I have to say, I have to say, my years on the Isle of Man have been a pleasure. You know, it's, uh, it's um, a lovely place to work. And I hope, I hope that that we've made a difference, you know, in terms of the quality of life for people with, uh, with problems associated with illness, uh, chronic illness. I haven't mentioned the, the work that we do with people who have chronic pain, but, but CBT and so on and other types of therapy. Work, work with those and, and, and also of course with the advent of i listen and the the issues around quality of life for for younger people uh, so it's a joy working on the island and i hope that we've made a difference
0: oh, i'm sure in fact perhaps once once the world's back to whatever normal is we can have a sit down when you're on the man and maybe dig into those particular subjects uh, and chat about that in a, in a little detail because I think that would be quite interesting actually just based on other stuff we and other people we've talked to.
2: Yeah, no problem. I've been conscious that I've been kind of a bit flighty in this and I've gone from pillar to post and talked a lot about things. as It's been kind of... Uh, it's 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 what somebody called flow of ideas here you know but, but maybe that's the way it should be in a, in, in a conversation of this nature and certainly if you wanted to deal with any of the things whether it be mental health issues whether it be psychotherapy whether it be kind of the nuances of, of, of particular addictions or whatever it is uh, or trauma for that matter uh, the impact of trauma and the impact of agreement for example i would be very happy to uh, to,
0: to talk about sort of perhaps more depth in areas like that yeah I think 100% I think one of the things we wanted to do for for I suppose for ourselves as much as for, for listeners was I suppose very high level of you know the broad, broad strokes of addiction where it comes from mm-hmm. and try, for ourselves as well trying to understand it a little bit more and then yeah definitely because I think uh, I mean we all go through grief don't we uh, at some oh, stage yeah. in our life and, and handle it in different ways so digging into those particular aspects. So, yeah, let us know. I'm sure it would be much more fun face-to-face as well. So we'll come up to the iListen officers when you're next on the island. And uh, if you can spare yeah. an hour or two, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll dig into some specific subjects.
2: No problem.
0: Great. Thanks. Thanks, Robin.
2: Matt, Thanks do you want, you want
1: to check us, us out? Yeah. Uh, so wherever you're listening to today, please like, share, subscribe, and leave those five-star reviews pretty, please. On social media, Facebook, we're The M Word Podcast. Twitter, we are N-word podcast number one, and on Instagram we are the N-word IOM.
0: Cheers, mate. Thanks again, everyone. Apologies if it's a little fuzzy the sound, but uh, it shouldn't spoil the uh, spoil the enjoyment. So thank you for letting us in your ears. It's word out from on and word out from on.